With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And you, and you, and you. And you were there. Some of it wasn't very nice, but most of it was beautiful. Hello there, everybody. Welcome to Green Idiots. Uh, Thank you for all your uh, reviews, getting in touch with us. We've been talking to some other uh, fledgling podcasters, and it's been really interesting getting feedback from them. So thank you for everything you've uh, done in terms of your responses via email and just checking in with us. Uh, Brian handles the socials, the Instagram and uh the instagram because <laughs> i'm so young and hip and and pretty no not, no none of the above actually and brian we are up to episode 29 which is great because that's a prime number and i like prime numbers because they're cool but you get to go <laughs> first this week excellent all right um here we go folks another ridiculous tale which hopefully you will all enjoy. So uh, we're going to go back to World War II, and we're going to talk talk about a guy named Christopher William Clayton Hutton. Uh, he was born in 1893. For some inexplicable reason, he chose the nickname Cluddy. So Cluddy Hutton, uh, fairly unfortunate. Um, it sounds like <laughs> sounds like if you're Cluddy, you, you might have a mild case of the clap. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> It sounds like Some, something not, is dripping or oozing. Yes. Yeah. Not, not, a, not a good choice there. They're Hutton. Um, and so you have, you know, I'm sure you've heard of MI5 and MI6. Yes. Okay. So do you know what, do you know what they do? Uh, MI5 and MI6, I think are like the rough uh, British equivalents to the CIA and the FBI, but I can't remember which is which one is internal security and the other is external security. Yeah, is that yeah, right? Okay. Yeah, essentially. Yeah, exactly. So, so MI5 is, is British Domestic intelligence, MI6, is, is foreign in- intelligence. So MI6 is where John le Carré served before he was a writer. Uh, Sidney Riley was in MI6. James Bond, if he were, if, you know, if he were real, were, was in MI6. Uh, so good old, good old Cluddy Hutton here served during World War II uh, under something called MI9. So uh, it's not just MI3 better. Um, MI9 <laughs> is, uh, was something that only existed from 1939 to 1945. So it was you know, Section 9 of the British Directorate of Military Intelligence. So it was, it was super secret. It was super duper secret. And so 
basically what MI9 did during World War II, it, it had it had two functions. It helped to keep uh, airmen, soldiers, allied forces, if they went they went down or were behind enemy lines, MI9 worked solely toward keeping those folks from being captured. And, if, and then I, function number two was if they did get captured, helped to you know give them, give them some tools and some devices to help free themselves from capture, from uh, being in prisoner of war camps. So um, I, I actually didn't really fully appreciate the fact that there was this clear demarcation. Obviously, uh, the Nazis did lots of really atrocious things during World War II, Birkenbau, uh, you know, Auschwitz, Dachau. But if you were an allied prisoner of war, even though Nazis were doing all these you know, atrocious war crimes in other locations, the Nazis, Nazi Germany was actually comparatively careful about adhering to the, the rules of war and the Geneva Conventions regarding the treatment of soldiers. And so, you know, I, I dare to suggest that if you if you were a prisoner of war, it probably wasn't a day in the park. But if you were a prisoner of war, it was it had to have been considerably better than than those, you know, the citizens that were murdered for simply being Jewish. So, so there was this sort of weird, I guess, line in the sand between um, captured soldiers and the citizens that the Nazis sought to expunge. So in Hutton's estimation, what he wanted to do and what he thought was important, if you were behind enemy lines, whether you were caught or not, was he, you know, he wanted to make sure you had, you had three things, maps, compasses, and food. And so it was kind of a precursor to what Q did in the James Bond movies. The quartermaster role in MI6 definitely existed. There was a, was a, was a office under MI6 that, you know, I think exists to this day that is responsible for coming up with new funky, cool things to help out their, their personnel. Uh, and so and the, the often, prerequisites for that job are, you have to be an inventor. You have to be persnickety and uh -huh. uh, you you have yeah, to have you have to, you have to have, <laughs> and you have to have you know crazy wild wild eyebrows i think probably is that's that's <laughs> that's in the job description i suspect because it seems like they always did uh and so what he's you know sought to do is if you know if you were an, uh, an airman you're flying you know a spitfire you're flying a bomber you're flying anything and you were going down behind enemy lines you were you were already equipped before you left with a number of devices on your body during world war one uh, british british military started sort of playing around with the idea that silk was a really good fabric uh that could be used for maps so apparently inks adhere really well to silk and silk can be folded and compressed down into really really small space and so um, many, many soldiers apparently flew and in, in inside uh, one of the buttons on their coat in, in literally inside the button would be a map. You would have a compass sometime in the collar ends on your on either your coat or on your shirt. Uh, so if you went down, you could have you had a map and at least a very, very provisional, provisional but functional um, compass. Um, they figured out, um, you know, basically you, you could you know, unscrew the button and pull out this map. At some point during the war, that they had the idea, well, let's reverse the threads on these on these buttons, so the Germans won't know their maps there. But the Germans figured out they reversed the threads, <laughs> and so they reversed them again, apparently, uh, <laughs> in, order, in order to hide them again. They uh, at one point. So that, um, that's how you would tell which button had the map because the threads were reversed. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, like, gotcha, I, I gotcha. guess so. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, later, uh, at one point later on, they had um, they would actually include um, magnetized razor blades that had a letter G um, on 
basically on um, somewhere in the, in the in the lapel. So if you lined up the two letter G's, they 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 were magnetized, and it would it would basically unlock, so you could pull out the magnetized you know, portion of the uh, of this razor. Because having it magnetized would allow you to have again a very very basic uh, compass if you were you know down behind enemy lines. Gotcha. Gotcha. I mean, how, I mean, I understand at a 30,000 foot view level how that might work. But again, since I'm, you know, a complete, you know, dumbass with, with these things, I don't quite understand how you'd execute on that. But nevertheless, it was something they were, they were working on, on very, very hard. The, um, they had the idea as well that they basically mirrored the RAF uniform at least the overcoat such that it was pretty similar to a German's uniform. So you go down, you survive the crash. You're then presumably on foot. You could with shears or a knife, make a couple of really quick modifications to your RAF uniform. And suddenly you look like a German soldier or, or, or reasonably close to the passing eye. You're not, you don't, you don't stand out because you're wearing something that's, that's very obviously British. Um, many of the um, pilots also, had what were called flying boots. So if you're if you're in a plane, you're wearing you know a, a boot that has has a legging to it. But if you're behind enemy lines, that boot stands out. And so the boot actually had had a, had a knife um, in it where you could pull the knife out, um, basically cut off the legging portion of the boot. And so you you know you're basically left with a fairly functional walking shoe that looked pretty normal. Um, and then you could actually stitch the two pieces of the leggings back together and basically wear it as a waistcoat for more warmth. <laughs> so, but again, it was this, this tool, by, you know, they, they, they thought through, okay, so you, you, know, you go down, how can we make sure that you can blend in as, you know, as best you can um, behind enemy lines, because there's no way to know what, you know, what might happen to you um, when you're down. Um, by virtue of, you know, these types of efforts, I, I had no idea, no idea this was the case. Um, something on the order of 35,000 allied military personnel uh, managed to escape from POW camps or evade capture during the war and make it back to allied ground or neutral ground um, during that, basically that six-year window, window, window that the British were in World War II. That's just a staggering, staggering uh, number That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had no idea it was you know, anywhere close to that, to that high, high of a number. Um, they also had um, one of the other things that, that Hutton worked on was they were aware of the fact that the Germans were trying to adhere as best they could to the Geneva conventions. And so, you know, I don't know what the, what those conventions say, you know, to the letter, but basically, if um, you know Red Cross donations were were, were uh, you know if it was clear that there was a charity sending in donations to prisoners of war, they weren't looked at that closely, right? And so Hutton went about setting up a number of fictitious organizations um, <laughs> throughout Britain and gave them names as if they were real. Uh, they included names such as the. <laughs> licensed victuallers sports association the prisoners leisure hour fund <laughs> the ladies knitting circle and the jigsaw puzzle club and so these various groups uh would you know would send in care packages to to uh to soldiers uh they would come up with what, what appeared to be realistic or reasonably accurate addresses even though even though the addresses were fictitious 
very often as a, a sort of a bit of a fuck you, the address would be um, but the location of something that had been destroyed in the blitz. So, you know, something like that had, had been had been bombed oh. by the Germans. They, they would use that as the address as, as, a, as, a, as a middle finger, which is kind of kind of clever. There was at least one uh, fake vicarage that was used over and over and over again. Um, but because they were so diligent about, um, you know, the, the Germans were, you know, again, we're trying to follow the rules at least a little bit. The, you know, they were monitoring these packages and um, they would actually get signed, um, signed receipts for these parcels. And so the British would know which packages were getting through and which, and, and which were not because there was a, ret a return receipt for, <laughs> for these packages. And so they would know what, you know, what got through uh, and what, and what, what didn't. Right. Um, lost my lost my place in the notes um so they also included in the in some of these packages there would be uh blankets that would you know seem innocuous enough that uh if you got them wet uh, the uh, an outline of a basic coat pattern would be revealed so you could take this blanket and if you managed to get out you could take oh. again take some shears cut the blanket into the shape and it was a, it was a functional poncho ish coat ish of of, of, of some sort they also included they, 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 they did absolutely include puzzles and board games in monopoly they would include real money either french <laughs> french francs or deutschmarks and so they you know, go through the monopoly set pull out the, the real money and pocket that in case you need it um again very often there would, be, there would be nail files or knives or things like that hidden in the in, hidden in the board in case you needed it in case you wanted to work on some you know some jail bars etc uh, and again, you know, this was this man's full-time job during the entire, uh, entire course of the, uh, the war. So, uh, you know, a few other things, I guess I mentioned some of these, there was, um, a, a wooden pencil stub and, and uh, there were all kinds of magnetized bits of metal. Um, this guy was just obsessed with compasses, I guess, a wooden pencil that had a magnetized rod hidden in the lead. They had our RAF ration packs, food packs. that had a, a, a compass and a miniature clock hidden inside. So there's like, you know, basically unscrewed. There's a, a screw threaded stopper on it that had included that. Oh. Um, there was a, uh, what's called a propelling pencil, which I don't even understand what that even means, had, but it had a hollow barrel. Um, but inside the hollow barrel, that, that included, it would have a compass and a space to slide in one of those compressed maps, but how a how it's propelling, I don't quite <laughs> quite understand. But again, you know, compasses concealed in collar studs uh, and all kinds of little you know toys and you know devices to make sure that uh, you had at least some min min minimal means to to escape and uh, and get away. Uh, and I had no idea that you know these you know this the mi9 even existed that they worked this hard i guess it doesn't really surprise me because you know and during the course of war all kinds of thought processes have to have to be, have to be gone through in order to maximize the odds of victory but coming up with fake charities and and going so far as the the, the charity packages that they would send if it was if it came from liverpool the extra packing material would be crumpled up old editions of the local newspaper, but then and they would use the same packing material every single time. So it wouldn't, wouldn't be thrown off. Um, just a ridiculous level of sort of a diligence and care to make sure that their, that their cover wasn't blown. So all they're trying to do is, is help their folks get out. And it's, um, a, it's, a, it's basically, it's the skills of a con man. 
right? I oh, mean, yeah, it's right, just absolutely, right. It's, subterfuge it's, and hiding yeah, things, yeah, yeah, yeah. Be, being very good at, at, at malingering or, or something. It's, it's, <laughs> it could be, you know, peculiar that they you know, worked this hard. He actually, um, Hutton was actually later on came up with a, um, a cigarette based camera. I think the, apparently the first ever. And, and um, toward the end of the end of the war, it sounds like he was a little bit admonished for some of his effort because he did start to get into more and more sort of contraptions and things that was definitely under kind of under the auspices of MI6. And so, yeah, no, you can't really be, you know, just worry about the more basic stuff. <laughs> uh, we don't need all these little fancy toys so much. That's not really your, your bailiwick. So, you know, stick to what you, to what you know. But um, I really had no idea that, that this, this whole, endeavor went on or that it was so um so widespread or so successful for so long that that's astonishing um most of my uh, knowledge of pow experiences in germany comes from watching the great escape many many times (laughs) 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 and just thinking about how helpful that would be because packages alone can send you stuff that you can use just like butter and stuff like that, that you right. can trade with the guards to get more stuff and, uh, or, you know, special privileges or whatever. But the fact that they had these little hidden tools here and there that I, I didn't know that I didn't know any of that. That's fascinating. And what if, I don't want to say fun job, but <laughs> what an interesting role to play. Am I nine? Am I nine? And it only yeah. lasted for the dur- six years for the duration of the war. Yeah, for for six years, wow. some of those contraptions. I think the the uh, the flying boots stuck around uh, until at least the fifties, and but you know, but it's least. But I was digging into the story. There are some sort of funny you know anecdotes about Germans trying to do some of the same same things. There's a story I stumbled across about some some German soldiers or German spies rather who managed to sneak into Great Britain, and um, you know they were hopelessly inept um, and they had, you know, they had on them like German hand cream and were asking for German beers and stuff. And like, uh, and they were, they were caught within, within hours of, <laughs> within hours of being, of being in, in England. Like, yeah, who, who you, your name is Hans. Yeah. You're, you're, yeah. You're, come with me, please. <laughs> so anyway. Well, and I know that American flyers had stuff sewn into their, their uniforms as well, but I don't think it was that, I don't know much about it, but I do know that they had things like, um, I want to say they had like thin bars of gold that you could break oh, off wow, and okay. trade, like break off uh-huh. like a Kit Kat bar and, and pass around stuff like that. And then uh, the old rip saw that you can use, yeah, yeah, for the, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the collars of coats and whatnot, but compasses and magnets and the, the boots, that's brilliant. Just being able to cut away the leather boots and turn it into a waistcoat. That's which I guess that's a vest, right? Isn't it? That's what a waistcoat is, is basically. Yes, right. Yeah. Basically, yeah. Wow. That's awesome. So, so very, very cool. What, good old Cluddy. Good old Cluddy Hutton. Good old Cluddy. And, so, and so from now on, please call me Cluddy. I want to be, I want to be called Cluddy. Cluddy treat. Okay. Yeah, no thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right is it time oh my god is it time it's time for the dream idiots curse word of the week so the curse word of the week this week just because it, look? It, 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 it required a visual <laughs> this is a visual and so 
prior to recording, I, I sent Morris the curse word of the week. And mm-hmm. would, you like, would you like to tell everyone what it is you're looking at? It's a shot of what appears to be a highway of some type. There's a uh, white car following a semi truck in the mm-hmm. it's in the left lane. The truck's in the right lane. Mm-hmm. Then there's a bright yellow sign <laughs> with a green rectangle inside it that says the it says E45, which I guess is the name of the, the highway they're on. The designation and, of the highway. Yep. And below it in black lettering are two words, fart control <laughs> with controlled spell with a K. There you have it. So fart, fart control, I guess. What fart what control. Is, what, it, what does that mean? That means on flatulence is not allowed on that stretch of highway. No. Um, <laughs> fart is the Danish word for speed. Okay. So is the E45 then the speed that you can go or is it? No, I think E45 is the designation of that, that particular okay. highway. <laughs> but that indicates, I think, I think as, in like, as in like Germany, there are stretches of highway that I guess don't have a speed limit. And so this... So this area does have a fart control. <laughs> fart that's, just, control. that's just telling you that you're, that you're entering a zone for fart control. So you can't, it's not unfettered <laughs> speed. So there you have it. Uh, I'd like to see what the ticket would read if you got uh, pulled over <laughs> for that by the cops. <laughs> Was is the fart control? <laughs> I'm... Okay. We'll, we will post a picture of this on uh, the website, I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fart control. Plant, planting seeds. Planting seeds. That's what I do. Uh, and yet again, we work in the word fart into an episode. So really, it should be really, I'm going to change it to the fart word of the week. I think every week. Um, to change gears yet again, yet kind of stay the same. Brian, we're going to stay in World War II for a little bit because Uh-oh. I've got a story as well. And it's also about an invention. So let's talk about Eva Maria Keisler. You ever heard that name? Eva Maria? Nope. No idea. Okay. Um, I'm just going to call her Eva so I don't have to rattle off the whole thing. She was born in 1914 in Austria. She passed away in January of 2000. So she lived a long life. Damn. She was an actress and she appeared films in the late 20s and into the 30s in Europe. She was in some Czech films, some Austrian films. Uh she appeared in a pretty controversial movie when she was just 15 or 16 that I'll talk about a little bit, but at the age of 18, she married an Austrian arms manufacturer and dealer who in the early thirties started working with, because he's in Austria, started working with the Nazi party. Uh, Eva, Eva was also Jewish. And so she had to act as a hostess for many of these Nazi shitheads at social gatherings. Her husband would have them over and reportedly Hitler never met with him because he, he couldn't meet because the, her husband was also Jewish. So he couldn't meet with them, but she would have to act as hostess for these guys for gatherings. So by 1937, she said, screw this, I'm leaving home. She fled to Paris and she met a fellow by the name of Louis B. Mayer. Hmm. You know that name? Oh, uh, yeah, sure. Mayer, Mayer, of course, is part of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, MGM Studios. And she moved to Hollywood in 37 and 38. And she had a pretty substantial film career, mainly up until the 1950s, early 1950s. Oh, wow. She was married multiple times, six to be exact. And at one point, she wasn't married to him, but she she was involved with Howard Hughes, um, the great aviator, inventor, all around uh, recluse, lunatic. Yeah, (laughs) smart, smart dude, though, right? And her relationship with Howard Hughes is described as more of a romance of the mind because she was an inventor as well. In 
World War II, she met a man who was 14 years her senior, and he became her inventing partner, a guy by the name of George Antile. I think I'm saying that right. Antile was a composer. He was an American avant-garde composer. He was devotee of Stravinsky, and he had a very mechanistic style of playing. In fact, he wrote a piece that involved 16 player pianos to be played at once. So it was really unusual <laughs> stuff for the 20s and 30s. And his Paris debut, one of his pieces, caused a riot in Paris, just like his hero Stravinsky, which is what he wanted. Uh -huh. um, when you watch and listen to his stuff, it's really fascinating music. In fact, I believe one of his pieces is actually called the Mechanical Ballet. Uh, that's what it translates to, is Ballet du Mechanique. Um, right. And the other thing that happened to them is that Antile's younger brother was actually the first American citizen killed in World War II. His civilian plane was shot down by Soviets over the Baltic Sea. He was with a, I believe he was with a group of Finnish diplomats. He was a diplomatic courier. And so he died over the, over the Baltic Sea in June of 1940. Later that summer, a civilian ship was destroyed by a U-boat and U-boats were all over the place, destroying things left and right. And this particular ship that went down, all 293 people aboard died. 83 of them were children. And this, this kind of spurred Antiel and Eva to, or I'm going to call them George, George and Eva to start working on something. Keisler had a laboratory in her home, a little laboratory inventing bench and bench and table. Howard Hughes made a replica one of, of one to keep in her trailer. So between shots, she could go and tinker with stuff. <laughs> right. Okay. And what they did is they solved a massive problem that the Navy had during the war. Torpedoes were radio controlled from ships, but Nazi U-boats and the engineers there were very, very good at jamming frequencies. So if you jam the remote control frequency with a torpedo, it veers off into one direction, misses the target entirely, and, and might even come back and hit someone else. But these torpedoes would sweep wide of the mark. And so what Keisler did is she said that, well, what we need to do is, is we need to figure out a way to be able to change frequencies of the torpedoes. And she was apparently inspired by the Philco Magic Box, which was available for Philco's radios. Uh -huh. And you could sit across the room wirelessly, change the frequency you're listening to. So instead of AM 860, it would go up to AM 930. So it was the first remote control, really. And it had a dial on it. And she said, we need to figure out a way to implement this. And instead of a regular frequency, what would happen is, is that signal would shift between multiple frequencies. Therefore, a jammer would only work for one second. And the, there would be more continuity and the torpedo would work better and hit its target. Um, she had a natural working knowledge for science, but it's a belief that she also had a pretty good working knowledge of torpedoes due to her first husband's arms manufacturing. In fact, some people would late later say that her ideas were stolen from the Nazis, but there's more evidence that she came up with this all by herself, she and Antile. So, uh, Antile. so George Antile used a player piano role as an inspiration. Remember how I said he used the player piano? <laughs> yeah. He was well known for being able to fix player pianos. So if they used a player piano role, what they did is it would give them 88 frequencies to hop between 88 keys on a piano, 88 frequencies. So they would have a synchronized rotation of these piano rolls on the ship and in the torpedoes. And these synchronized rolls, rather than acting, activating piano keys, it would activate a switcher for the frequency. And if you got them going at the same time, frequencies would hop from one to the other and the frequency could not be jammed. You're that looking absolutely flummoxed. Completely insane. 
That is, I mean, it's, I mean, that's completely insane. <laughs> but it's absolutely brilliant. Instead of activating, yeah, yeah. because the way the player, piano player works, player pianos work, is what activate a key to get hit. Instead of a key, right? you rotate these at the same time. A patent was awarded for this in 1942. So Keisler and... Uh, Antile donated this to the National Inventors Council. And here's what the Navy did with it. They basically said, well, we're going to seize these designs anyway, because Antile was American, but technically Keisler was still an Austrian citizen and therefore an enemy. So they seized this idea and they told her, hey, you're a movie star. Honey, why don't you go out and sell war bonds instead? instead of letting her invent and work on these ideas, because she wanted right. to work with, with the Navy. Now, to her credit, she did earn $25 million in 1940s money in war bonds. So she was very, very good at it. But frequency technology, the Navy took it and put it on a shelf for 20 years. It would not be used until the blockade of Cuba by the Kennedy administration. So how many lives could have been saved if we could have taken out more U-boats right. in World War II? Um, all because of this thing called frequency hopping. But again, it sat on the shelf. Now, after the war, Antile, uh, George Antile, he was, like I said, 14 years older than Keisler. He died in 1959 at the age of 58. And I mentioned earlier, Keisler lived until the year 2000. In 1997, both of these inventors are recognized for their scientific contributions with the Electronic Frontier Foundation's Pioneer Award. And in 2014, they were both posthumously elected to the National Inventors Hall of Fame. Now, I watched a documentary that was excellent on this. And I said earlier that some people felt that she, she just stole these ideas from the Nazis. But the director of this one documentary I'll mention when I give the sources, she interviewed 75 people. And the conclusion is generally that this was not the case. She may have gained knowledge of torpedoes, mm-hmm. but she pretty much people pretty much think that she invented this idea of frequency hopping. Um, because in addition to this, she had a couple other inventions too. She invented a tablet, not unlike Alka-Seltzer, but it was made of Coca-Cola. So if you're out in the field and you're a soldier and you need a little taste of home, you drop a Coca-Cola cube into your canteen, shake it up, and you've got a Coca-Cola in your canteen rather than plain old water. Wow. <laughs> and she wanted, she wanted to be used for all of the women who were working in manufacturing, particularly in planes. She said, wouldn't it be great if these women had access to these little cubes so they could take a little Coke break and have a, have a nice soda while they're working. Right. She said that she blew that one because she didn't take into account the fact that there's mineral differences in various parts of the country and around the world. Mm. So sometimes the stuff would float on the bottom. Sometimes it would go to the top. Right, right, all sure. depending. Right, right. She went to Howard Hughes and said, Howard, um, and she called Howard Hughes the worst lover she ever had. Like I said, they had an affair <laughs> of the mind. She used books of birds and fish and took it the, took basically the fastest species of those, took pictures of them and looked at them. And she designed a better airplane wing for Howard Hughes. She, Keisler is the reason that airplane wings jut out at an angle from airplanes and don't go straight across perpendicularly. Mm. She said, you've got to put the wings at an angle. It's going to make your planes go faster, Howard. And guess what? She was right. Frequency hopping is also the basis of technology we're using right now. Frequency hopping is the basis for GPS, Wi-Fi, and Bluetooth technology. So if you're listening to the podcast through your phone in your car and you're using Bluetooth, you can thank Eva Marie Keisler and George Antile for this. Now, in true Paul Harvey fashion, 
<laughs> I forgot to mention, she changed her name when she came to the United States because that's a, her full name was actually Hedvig Eva Marie Keisler. <laughs> so she mixed up her first name, added a new last name, and she was known as Hedy Lamar. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Sure, sure. Who is well known for her performance in Samson and Delilah. That was kind of her divining performance, I think, in 49. She always suffered from this idea that she's such a beautiful woman, and she is stunning. But she always felt that no one knew the real her because she wanted to invent stuff. She wanted to get out there and make stuff. She was the inspiration visually for Snow White. She was also the visual inspiration for the original design of Catwoman in the Batman comic books. Oh, wow. Um, Mel Brooks was in love with her. Mel Brooks is, it, it talks several times in this documentary, which is kind of funny because Hedy Lamar would end up suing Warner Brothers for the use of her name in Blazing Saddles. It always comes back to Blazing Saddles in this podcast. But <laughs> you recall Harvey Corman's character's name, Hedley Lamar. Uh -huh. She sued Warner Brothers and won out of court for some settlement for, yeah, for, for using for her name. the name, right. <laughs> right. Um, the sources for this were uh, primarily this excellent documentary that's available on Amazon Prime for rental. Highly, highly recommended. Written and directed by Alexandra Dean. And it's called Bombshell, the Hedy Lamar story, part of the PBS American Masters series. And I want to call special attention to the guy, a guy by the name of Fleming Meeks. He was a reporter for Forbes. He had numerous interviews that he had taped with Hedy Lamar towards the end of her life that were used as a basis for this documentary. I also used a YouTube called Weird Wonderful Women, Episode 9, Hedy Lamar, and then good old Wikipedia just for basic, you know, basic names and right, right. But what an astonishing life. And I mean, who knows what the course of history would be if the Navy had used that technology back then. Right, right, sure. And clearly she changed the way we communicate today with this basis for GPS, Wi-Fi, and Bluetooth all through this idea of frequency hopping. Mm -hmm. uh, I think one of the great unsung uh, inventors of World War II. And so, you know, I, th I think she and Cluddy Hut uh, Hutton would have had a lot to talk about. Um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, I'm, uh, so bizarre that we came up with this. Okay. We, folks, I swear we don't coordinate our... <laughs> no, we don't. But our, I, I've, been, topics. <laughs> I've been wanting to talk about this one for a while, but after the CBI, <laughs> I wanted to take a break from World War II. But this is totally different stuff. And um, I, just an incredible inventor. She was also the basis for a character that was in the um, Marvel TV series from a few years back, uh, Agent Carter, uh, Agent Carter of S.H.I.E.L.D. She mm. appeared, there's a character in the second season that's based on her, this inventor actress. Um, so, you know, she's, she had a huge impact then. And, and people don't, I mean, they don't talk about Hedy Lamar a lot, I don't think. Um, but she's, because of documentaries like this, the Hedy Lamar story, Bombshell, starting to recognize what, a, what an astonishing mind she was in a very difficult time when it was for women to get recognition for being scientifically minded and being able oh, to, sure. I mean, I mean, when you think about it, does she belong up there with Madame Curie? I don't know. I mean, I can't make that kind of assessment, but wow. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, certainly amazing. I mean, you know, certainly a, a person that has the, you know, has a, has a brain that I, honor and respect and realize that I don't have. And, you know, ha you know, having that, that type of, what is it? 
aptitude, uh, you know, just being able to see things in a, in a different way. Um, you know, maybe somewhat similarly, I mean, we, we talked on this show about Hazel Hill, you know, that's who I thought of when I was writing this. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, yeah. how many stories are there out there of women who, who have gifts who are then expected to diminish themselves and squelch their gift or their desire because, it's not what women do, or you're not really supposed to do that. You're not, you know, wouldn't you be happier um, doing something? Selling whatever. war bonds. Would you be happier well, selling war bonds? Yeah. yeah. Let, let, let's find some way to, to minimize you and make you a prop or make you, um, you know, put you in a, in a supporting role to a man, because obviously, you know, men at all times in, in, you know, in all functions are superior. Uh, and so the fact that, that, you know, any woman from any period of time, I mean, even now, obviously, but the further back you go, the harder it must've been for, for, you know, someone with this level of cranial capacity to get anything done because oh, you're just a woman. Come on. What could you possibly know? You know? Well, and in an effort not to minimize, I have shared a few things from that documentary because I don't like it. I don't like to use a documentary and then tell you everything that happened in it. Mm -hmm. There's tons of more examples of her brilliance in this documentary and just hearing her talk about things and the way she looks at the world, right. that's part of that. So I highly recommend if you're interested in this story, checking out that it's available for like $2.99 on Amazon. Well worth, it's like a 90 minute documentary, well worth the $2.99. Um, a great, a great documentary by Alexandra Dean, uh, really good stuff. And the other thing that I think both of our stories today show, and this is a hard one to get around because I think it's true, but I think it's also an unpleasant thing to think about is that conflict conflict breeds creativity and in the yeah, case absolutely. of war we come up with stuff that i mean when we think about all the th inventions that came out of world war ii we've got frequency hopping we've got uh radar we've got well alan alan turing and the first super supercomputer was basically yes right yeah and and this argument that you see that hey you know conflict things can come out of conflict that you don't expect and I mean, I guess if you ask the slogan war, is it, what is it good for? And the response in the song is absolutely nothing. Well, we've made some significant strides with technology. Not all of them good. I mean, my gosh, right. look at the atom bomb, right? right. So I, I don't know what the payoff is and I don't know if it's equitable or not, but I think it's a fact that conflict creates stuff, whether it's used for good or for ill or, I mean, I, I think conflict creates new technology. And I think we can look back through the history of civilization and see that. So, yeah. Anyway. Yep. Well, that's it. Uh, the brilliance of both uh, Petty Lamar and uh, Cluddy Hutton. And, and she definitely and has the better control. name. And Fart Control. <laughs> Petty Lamar definitely has the better name of the two. But um, there you go. Another strangely synchronous episode of Dream Idiots. <laughs> Yes. Well, all right, th folks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in, do doing all those things. Um, please go online, rate, and subscribe. Um, you can email us, email us, Dream Idiots Podcast at Gmail. Go to dreamidiots.com. Look at merchandise. Buy shit, um, and share this stuff with anyone else out there you think who might be willing to suffer <laughs> suffer through <laughs> with uh, with us. <laughs> You haven't suffered until that one started quizzes the other one about the stupid puns. That's when things get bad. Um, yeah, and be good to each other, folks. Thanks for listening. <laughs>